Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by... Jacqueline Brown, author of The Light Series, a best-selling Catholic fiction series that will leave you asking, who would I become if the world fell away? Enter code MYSTERIOUSWORLD at Jacqueline-Brown.com for 10% off. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. You're listening to episode 112 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about God and the gods. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. For all of human history, people have sensed the divine. Belief in God or the gods is a human universal appearing in all cultures but the different beliefs and ideas they have about them can be bewildering. Even in Israel, there was conflict between those who proclaimed the one true God and those who wanted to worship other deities. Through the centuries, God led his people through a series of stages on their journey with him. So how did ordinary Hebrews understand these matters while they were on that journey? What did the biblical authors think? And how should we understand these concepts today? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we need to begin by saying? Most of the mysteries we cover on the show, we give like a historical background on the mystery, and then we look at it from the faith and reason perspectives. And this time, our detective story is going to take a bit of a different path. While I could pull out the historical information and put it in a separate section, The faith and reason sections are so intertwined when we're talking about God and the gods that it it would just overcomplicate things. So so today we're just going to go straight through the material, looking at things from the faith and reason perspectives simultaneously. Okay, let's start with some terms that people have heard. What do words like polytheism, monotheism and atheism mean? Each of these terms has a Greek origin, and the element they have in common is theism, which comes from two Greek roots. Whenever you hear an ism, that's on the end of a word, that's from the Greek root ismos, which means a teaching or a practice. So an ism is a teaching or a practice. The question is, teaching or a practice about what? Well, that's answered by whatever whatever root the ism is is attached to. And in this case, uh, uh, theism, the ism is attached to the word theos, which means God. So theos and ismos, you get theismos or theism. And so it's a teaching or practice about God or the gods. But how do you know how many gods you're talking about? Well, that's answered by the first part of the word. In the case of polytheism, the first part of the word, the poly, comes from the Greek word polus, which means many. So polytheism is a teaching or practice about many gods. 
In the case of monotheism, the word monos means single or only. So monotheism involves a single God or the only God. And then in the case of atheism, the word a in Greek means, the prefix a means no or not. And so atheism involves no gods. So the way the words have evolved in English, polytheism refers to the belief that many gods exist. Monotheism is the belief that one god exists. And atheism is the belief that no gods exist. All right, those are the three of the most important terms for talking about belief in God, but there are others, right? Oh, yeah. Scholars love their jargon, and so they have come up with all kinds of specialized words, especially in the last few centuries. These include terms like theism, deism, pantheism, panentheism, and agnosticism, but among others. But to keep things simple, we won't really be going into those today. We will need to introduce another term as we go along, but I promise to keep the jargon to, the, to a minimum. For now, polytheism, monotheism, and atheism are the key terms that you'll want to be familiar with. But even with those terms, there's a big problem we need to tackle. What do you mean by God? Why would that be a problem? Well, the term God means different things to different people. When Jews, Christians, and Muslims use the term, it refers to the infinite and supreme being who created the world. But that's not what it meant to most people in ancient history. In these cultures, uh, you know, especially the ones the Israelites had contact with, most of the gods were not conceptualized as being an infinite supreme creator. They were supposed to be superhuman, but most of them did not create the world. Also, most of them were themselves created beings. For example, in the Egyptian religion, the popular falcon-headed god Horus, you know, one of the most common ones, you see Horus eyes all over the place. He was often identified with the sun, so he was a sun god, but he didn't have anything to do with the creation of the world. Also, like most Egyptian gods, he was a created being who came into existence at a certain point in time when he was born. His, his mom was Isis and his dad was Osiris, and so he didn't go all the way back in time. He came into existence at a certain point. So he may have been one of the most popular Egyptian gods, but he wasn't anything like the Judeo-Christian understanding of God. And with some cultures, the concept of God is even more problematic because some languages do not have a word for God. That's the case, for example, in Japanese. In Japanese, what we would call gods are known as kami. Amaterasu, for example, is the Japanese sun goddess or the sun kami. The problem is that the term kami doesn't just refer to what we would call gods. It also refers to other superhuman spirits who attend the gods and do their bidding, things that we would consider more like angels. And it can refer to nature spirits, like the spirit of a river or a mountain. And it can even refer to the souls of departed human beings. So your dead ancestors are kami. So you can see, you can't just use the word kami and have it mean God. The term is much broader than that. In fact, we have a term like that in English, the word spirit. You know, God, the one true God, is a spirit, as Jesus tells us in John 4.24. But so are angels. Angels are spirits, too. 
and so are the souls of departed human beings. And just to anticipate where we're going to go, Hebrew has a term like this too. In fact, as we're going to see, one of the most common Hebrew terms for God, Elohim, works this way also. It can mean the true God, or a pagan God, or an angel, or even a departed human soul. Any kind of spirit can be called Elohim. And that means that if you asked an ancient Hebrew, are you a monotheist or a polytheist? Do you believe in one Elohim or more than one Elohim? He wouldn't initially know what to say. You'd have to clarify what you meant by Elohim, because he could take it different ways. For example, one of the most famous prayers, probably the most famous prayer in Judaism, is known as the Shema Yisrael. Shema means hear, and Yisrael is Israel. So the prayer, which is taken from Deuteronomy 6.4, goes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And in the original Hebrew, the word for God is Elohim. So it's the Lord our Elohim is one. So if you asked an ancient Hebrew if he was a monotheist and he was thinking of the Shema, he might answer yes. But if he was thinking about the fact that the term Elohim can also refer to angels and departed human souls, he might say, well, I, I think angels and departed human souls exist, so I believe there are many Elohim. I, I guess I'm not a monotheist. And he might say that even if he thought all pagan gods are bunk and that only the true God is to be worshipped. So you can see how we need to clarify our terms if we're going to talk about polytheism and monotheism outside of a modern Christian context. So how do you propose to clarify that? I'd like to introduce a set of four different categories of spiritual beings which can apply across different cultures and religions. At the top are what we can call Category 1 spirits. A Category 1 spirit would be a supreme being above any other kinds of spirits that might exist. Such a spirit would not only be superhuman, but absolutely supreme. The Judeo-Christian god would go into this category, and some uh, pagan creator deities also might be considered supreme by their followers, in that they're above all the other gods of their pantheon. So even pagans could have, okay, there's these category one spirit or spirits at the top. By contrast, a category two spirit would simply be superhuman. A category two spirit would have powers and abilities that are superior to those that human spirits have, but they wouldn't be supreme. They would be clearly limited. And most pagan gods like Horus or Amaterasu would go in this category so would the angels that Jews and Christians believe in. As Hebrews 2.7 says, God made man a little lower than the angels, so they are spirits that are above us in the created order, so they'd be category two. By contrast, category three spirits would be those that are human or comparable to human. So departed human souls would go in this category, so would the souls of living human beings, and so would the souls of any rational aliens that God may have created elsewhere in the universe. They'd be equal to us, and they'd be category three. Finally, category four would be spirits that are subhuman. 
And these are speculated upon in different cultures that there may be little sprites or nature spirits or household spirits that aren't as powerful as humans, but that might interact with us. The Cottingley fairies that we discussed in episode 109, if they were real, might have gone into this category since they were believed to be significantly subhuman, kind of like spiritual monkeys was one of the ways that people thought about them. But even in Christian theology, there is a belief in subhuman spirits. James 2.26 tells us that the body without the spirit is dead. And so Christian theologians have traditionally held that anything that's alive has a spirit. The standard account is that while humans have rational souls that give us human-level reason, animals have what are called sensitive souls that let them sense and feel and think in a primitive way. And even plants have what are called vegetative souls that allow them to live and grow and reproduce. Now, according to the common theological opinion, and this is only opinion, it's not church teaching, most theologians think that subrational souls don't survive death. So human souls would survive death, but animal and plant souls wouldn't on this view. But still, Christian theology would traditionally acknowledge the existence of what we're calling Category 4 spirits, even if they don't survive death. So to recap, Category 1 spirits are supreme, Category 2 spirits are superhuman, Category 3 spirits are human or human equivalent, and Category 4 spirits are subhuman. And would there be variations within the categories? Yeah, not every spirit in a given category is going to be the same. For example, let's look at Category 1 spirits. In a given religion, a spirit could be supreme, you know, the highest one in that religion, without fully matching the Judeo-Christian understanding of God. For example, in some pantheons, there's a creator God who is superior to everybody else in the pantheon, but he's not like the true God in a couple of respects. First, in many pantheons, the creator came into existence at some point in the distant past. He didn't always exist, and he, didn't exist, he doesn't exist outside of time. Second, the creator God also frequently doesn't make the world from nothing. It's like there, there's, there's this pre-existing stuff, and then the creator forms out of that stuff, and then he shapes the rest of the stuff into the world. And so, consequently, this kind of Category 1 spirit would be finite in several respects. Uh, he doesn't create out of nothing, and he himself came into existence at a certain point. That kind of God would be superior to anyone else his worshipers believed in, but he wouldn't be the infinite, uncreated God who made the world from nothing. So even in Category 1, there can be different understandings of just how supreme a supreme spirit is. In Category 2, there also would be a wide range of variations. From a pagan perspective, there are major gods and minor gods. You know, so Zeus is superior to Apollo, and actually both of them are major gods, but Zeus is still superior to Apollo. And then there are lesser gods like Eos and people like that. And from a Judeo-Christian perspective, there are angels of different ranks. So angels are category two spirits also, but they come in different ranks. We know that Michael, for example, is an archangel, which means that he's a high ranking angel. Whenever you when you see an arche in Greek, it means like source or beginning or head or chief. And so an archeangelos is a high ranking angel, a chief angel. 
which implies the existence of angels that are lower ranking. So you got a variation either on a pagan or a Christian perspective among the category twos. In category three, there are obviously differences between human beings, and that would seem to apply to our spirits as well as our bodies. And in category four, there are really obvious differences, as illustrated by the fact that animals have sensitive souls, but plants only have vegetative souls. So even within each of the four categories, there's a range of different types of spirits in those categories. With that as background, let's talk about monotheism and polytheism. How does the introduction of these categories relate to them? Here's where the question of how you use the term God comes in, meaning what categories of spirits do you apply it to? If you speak a language like Japanese, where every spirit is a kami, then you could classify even category four or subhuman spirits using this term. You could also classify category three or human level spirits as kami. But that's not how we do it in English, where the term God is more restricted. In English, we'd obviously classify category one or supreme spirits like the true God as a God. But the difficulty comes with category two with the superhuman spirits. When we talk about pagan deities like Zeus or Apollo, we do speak of them as gods, even if we don't believe in them. But angels like Michael and Gabriel would also be category two or superhuman spirits, and we don't talk about them as gods. So English is quirky. Spoiler warning, English is quirky, <laughs> you know, but that's not surprising because it's, it's a quirky language in a lot of respects. For our purposes, the standard English usage would consider a category one spirit as a god and some but not all category two spirits as gods. And this is just because of the way that English as a language has historically developed. It's just weird. OK, so let's put the way English has historically developed aside for now, and just look at the principles. What could we say about monotheism and polytheism if we take a strictly principle-based approach? Well, let's start at the top and just look at the category one or supreme spirits. No matter what happens at lower levels of a pantheon of gods, we have to look at the top level or the supreme spirits. These spirits are the not only supreme, they're also the earliest. Either they've always existed, like the true God who was there in the beginning, or they were the first ones to come into existence who then fashioned the world. And so either way, these Category 1 spirits tend to be the creator God or gods. One of the things which you find out when you look at world religions is that the number of these supreme spirits is always small. There may have been many lesser gods and innumerable other spirits later on, but the original number of the supreme spirits is small by comparison. And this reflects a powerful human intuition that the uncountable number of complex phenomena we see around us in the world must be explained by underlying causes that are simpler and smaller in number. This is the fundamental intuition behind humans seeking causes for the phenomena we see around us. Uh, you know, how a small number of underlying principles can explain 
the many seemingly different things we see. Like how in physics, the single force of gravity can explain both why things here on Earth fall down and how the planets and stars move in the sky. The realization that it was the same force behind both was the first great unification in science, which Isaac Newton achieved back in the 1600s, as we discussed in episode 83 on the case of the missing universe and in episode 105 on Aquinas and the occult. Well, it's true that the complex phenomena we see in the world can be explained by a smaller, simpler set of underlying causes. So, that, so that's valid human intuition. The question is, how far back do you extend it? Does it go all the way back to a single supreme cause? Or are there several equally fundamental original causes? Sound philosophy and theology would say that it all has to go back to a single original cause. The reason is that if there were multiple original causes, they would have to exist together in some kind of common framework that would allow them to interact and produce the universe. You know, if you say there are these five fundamental causes, well, how are they interacting? to create the universe if there's no framework that allows them to relate to each other. But if there's a framework that allows them to relate to each other, then the framework itself would be the single fundamental reality that is responsible for everything else. So one way or another, it all goes back to one underlying cause. And that's the philosophically consistent thing to say, and it thus points to the existence of a single creator who is the basis of everything. But flawed humans are flawed humans, and not everybody carries through this principle consistently. In some religions, there is a small number of original supreme spirits who serve as their creator gods. Most often, if there is more than one, it's a pair. Maybe one of them is good and one of them is evil, reflecting the good and bad elements in human experience. Or maybe one of them is male and one of them is female, reflecting the fact that humans need two sexes to reproduce. And that's how they get their pantheon of gods started. However, in other more consistent systems, there's just a single supreme creator spirit. And this happens even in pagan religions, uh, which would normally be counted as believing in multiple gods. For example, Shintoism, the traditional Japanese religion, has a belief in Ameno Menakanushi, who is the single creator of everything. So Ameno Menakanushi is a category one spirit, and he's the only one there is in Shinto, at least based on my understanding of that faith. He's described as the god who came into being alone. So there were no other gods or kami that originally existed alongside of him. But directly or indirectly, Amidamanakanushi went on to create all the other kami, the other gods and spirits that exist in the Japanese pantheon. And this is an example of how monotheism on the level of the supreme god, so there's only one supreme god, can exist alongside belief in many spirits on, on other lesser levels. Well, let's talk about that. Does the fact that a religion may have a single supreme God affect whether it's classified as monotheist or polytheist? It depends. If you want to be really precise, we need to distinguish the types of spirits we're talking about on those different levels. If you believe that there's only a, a single class one or supreme spirit 
And that's the only kind of spirit you're going to call a god. Well, you could say, okay, I'm a class one monotheist. I reserve the term God only to the highest supreme spirit, and since I believe there's only one of those, I'm a monotheist. But that wouldn't tell you anything about what the person believes about lesser spirits. He's All he's done is reserve the term God for that one supreme spirit. He doesn't, you, you still don't know anything about what he believes about lesser spirits. Well, let's suppose that a person does think there is a single supreme God. Does that mean he's a monotheist? In terms of Class one spirits, yeah, you could call them a class one monotheist. But in many languages, including English, the term God isn't restricted to class one spirits. It's commonly extended to class two or superhuman spirits. That's the case in Hebrew and Greek and even in English. So even if you are a class one monotheist, you might be a polytheist if we extend the term God to class two spirit. So, for example, with Shintoists, who believe in a single class one spirit, they're still counted as polytheists because they believe in multiple class two spirits like Amaterasu, the sun goddess. Similarly, some of the Greek philosophers entertained the idea of there being a single class one spirit above everything, but they still went on to acknowledge the classical Olympian gods like Zeus and Hera and Apollo. So they would be counted as polytheists. And what about Hebrew thought? In the Old Testament, Orthodox Israelites only worshipped one God. But you said that they acknowledged the existence of class two spirits like angels, and yet we consider them monotheists. Yeah, and here's where the easy modern categories that that we're familiar with need to be further nuanced. To see why, we need to start digging into the biblical text. And I'd like to begin by talking about the Hebrew vocabulary that gets used for God and the gods. So what terms did the Hebrews use for God? The simplest was El, which meant God or deity. It could refer either to the true God or to a pagan one. In some uses, any deity could be referred to as an El. In Canaanite mythology, El was the name of the high god who ruled over a pantheon of lesser deities. And in the Bible, El is used to refer to the God of Israel. You hear this in a lot of names. Like a lot of cultures in the ancient world, Hebrews like to give their children what are called theophoric names, which means that they have the name of a deity embedded in the child's name. And this was very common. In the ancient world, for example, in Egypt, you know, you hear all those Egyptian names with Hotep in them, like Amenhotep or Mantuhotep. Well, in Egypt, they had gods like Amun and Mantu, and in Egyptian, Hotep means pleased. So Amenhotep means Amun, the god Amun is pleased, and Mantuhotep means the god Mantu is pleased. Like, oh, what a cute little baby! He pleases Mantu. Similarly, they had a god named Re or Ra, and Moses means born. So Ramesses, Ra-Moses, means Ra is born. They also did the same thing in Israel, where you get names like Michael, Daniel, and Elijah. In Mikael, for example, you, you hear the L in there. Mikael is a question that means who is like God or who is like El? With the implied answer, nobody. Nobody is like God. He's incomparable. No other deity is like him. Daniel is also straightforward. Don means judge. 
The E makes it possessive, so Dani means my judge. And then when you add the L to it, it becomes Daniel. God is my judge. So don't mess with this kid. God is his judge and will vindicate him against his enemies. The High Council of Togra sends its greetings. Well, you may call me Anise. It means noble strength. Um, I'm Daniel. It means uh, God is my judge. And Elijah, or Eliyah, to give one of its Hebrew variants, follows a similar pattern. El means God, the E makes it possessive, so Eli, my God, and then Yah is short for Yahweh, so Elijah, or Eliyah, means my God is Yahweh. And all these names, Michael, Daniel, Elijah, you know, they've, they've all got that L in them, and that's a reference to God. Incidentally, Superman, his Kryptonian name. Kal-El. It has been pointed out that Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, Superman's creators, were, of course, Jewish. And Superman, even though in some ways he's a Christ figure, he's also a Moses figure. Just like Moses escaped, you know, as a, as a baby and became a, a great deliverer, well, Superman escaped the destruction of Krypton as a baby and became a great deliverer. And it's been pointed out that his Kryptonian name, Kal-El, if you say it, the right way in Hebrew, kolel, it could mean voice of God, like <laughs> Moses was the voice of God. Interesting. So in, in the comics, they've explained kalel as meaning star child, but in Hebrew, it's been proposed it means voice of God. Mm. Now, the way, so we've got L as our first term for God in Hebrew, and the way you make a masculine word plural in Hebrew is by sticking the syllable im on the end of it, just like we stick an s on the end of words to make them plural in English. So one way to take L and make it grammatically plural is to say Elim or L plus Im. And that would mean gods. You typically use it if you're talking about pagan gods. Also, you know, there are other languages related to Hebrew, and so they have words that are related to L for God in Aramaic. The equivalent uh, one of the things you find in Aramaic is you tend to you often take the Hebrew word and stick an ah on the end of it. It becomes an Aramaic word. And so you take El, it becomes Elah in Aramaic and also Allah in Arabic. And so Elah or Allah are the Aramaic and Arabic terms that Christians as well as Muslims used to refer to God in those languages. So Allah doesn't refer to a different God than the creator who appeared to Abraham. Allah is simply the word for the true God in Arabic and Aramaic, and it's used by Christians in those languages. So be aware of that. There is, though, another term for God that we ought to mention in Hebrew, and that's Eloah. And you can hear how it sounds like El, but it's a little different, Eloah. And it also can refer to the true God or to a pagan one. And to make Eloah plural, you once again stick an Im on the end of it. So Eloah becomes the grammatically plural word Elohim. Elohim is just the plural form of Eloah. Now, if you were reading along in a Hebrew text and you encountered the word Elohim, and you didn't know anything else, the natural way to translate it would be gods, plural, because it's the word is grammatically plural. And that is the way you should translate it, 
sometimes, but not all the time, because there is an exception in the Hebrew language when it comes to this word. Sometime, much of the time, even though the word is grammatically plural, it's semantically singular. That means even though it takes the plural grammatical form, it means or refers to a single thing. So even though you'd think it means God's plural, it really means God, singular. This is something we see in other languages, including English. In English, there are some words that are grammatically plural, even though they refer to a single thing. For example, billiards is grammatically plural, but it refers to a single game, the game of billiards. You can't play billiard. It's always you play billiards. Similarly, mathematics is plural in form, but it refers to a single field of study, the field of mathematics. There's no such thing. You can't study a mathematic. It's always plural. You study mathematics. And that's how Elohim works. Mm. Like scissors and trousers. And we have lots of words like that. In yeah, yeah. Pants. Right. I wouldn't wear a pant. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So if in Hebrew, Elohim can either refer to God or to the gods, you need a way to tell which is the case in a given passage. So how do we do that? By looking at the context, there will be clues in the context that tell you whether it's God or the gods that are under discussion. These will often be verbs and pronouns. And the same thing happens in English. You can look at the verbs and the pronouns around a noun to figure out if it's referring to one thing or more than one thing. For example, in English, you can tell the difference between the verb forms is and are to tell you whether one thing or more than one thing is under discussion. If I say the sheep is happy, you know I'm talking about one sheep. But if I say the sheep are happy, you know I'm talking about more than one sheep. So just the is are distinction, the verb tells you is it one or, or more than one. You also can look at pronouns like he, she, or it, which are singular pronouns, or they, which is plural. So if I said he is a happy sheep, both the pronoun he and the verb is tells you it's just one sheep. But if I said they are happy sheep, both the pronoun they and the verb are tells you it's more than one sheep. So when you're reading along in Hebrew and you encounter Elohim, you look to the surrounding context at things like the verbs and the pronouns to tell you whether Elohim is referring to the one true God or whether it's a reference to pagan gods. Didn't Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet we discussed back in episode 50, didn't he translate the word Elohim in Genesis 1 as gods? Smith was inconsistent about this. He was not originally a polytheist, and scholars have noted that the Book of Mormon and his other early writings are monotheistic. However, over time, he became a polytheist, and after that happened, he started rewriting Genesis 1 to refer to the gods instead of to God. There's a saying in New Testament studies, which is, a little Greek is a dangerous thing, <laughs> meaning that if you've only studied a little Greek, you have to be very careful or you'll misread the text and make mistakes. 
Well, the same thing is true in Old Testament studies. A little Hebrew is a dangerous thing. And Joseph Smith had studied Hebrew briefly, so he had a little Hebrew, and he ended up seriously misreading the text of Genesis. This happens in what he called the Book of Abraham, which we discussed back in episode 50. Smith claimed to have translated it from some ancient Egyptian papyri, and when he read them, according to him, he discovered that it was a first-person account written by the patriarch Abraham himself, by his own hand upon papyrus. However, modern scholars can read the papyri that Smith used, and they don't have anything to do with Abraham. Uh, they're actually a book of magical spells that are meant to help a dead priest named Hor, or Horus, to give the Greek form of his name. Well, in the translation in Abraham chapters 4 and 5, Smith rewrites Genesis, the Genesis 1 narrative about the creation of the world, and where the original text has Elohim, he consistently translates it as the gods. So the gods are doing all this stuff. Here are, here are a few examples. And then the Lord said, Let us go down. And they went down at the beginning, and they, that is the gods, organized and formed the heavens and the earth. And the earth, after it was formed, was empty and desolate, because they had not formed anything but the earth. And darkness reigned upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of the gods was brooding upon the face of the waters. And they, the gods, said, Let there be light, and there was light. And they, the gods, comprehended the light, for it was bright, and they divided the light, or caused it to be divided from the darkness. And the gods called the light day, and the darkness they called night, and it came to pass that from the evening until morning they called night, and from the morning until the evening they called day. And this was the first or the beginning of that which they called day and night. And the text of Smith's Book of Abraham goes on like that, substituting the gods wherever Genesis has Elohim. But the Hebrew of Genesis 1 will not let you translate Elohim as the gods in these cases, because the verbs and pronouns are singular rather than plural. For example, here's the first part of Genesis 1-5 in the Revised Standard Version, which is a typical scholarly English translation. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. The word for God in this passage is Elohim, and so if you left that untranslated, that would be Elohim called the light day and the darkness he called night. It isn't obvious in English, but it is obvious in Hebrew that the verb for called is singular, just like is in English is different than are in English. Is is a singular verb. The verb for called here in Hebrew is singular, meaning a single God called the light day. It's absolutely unmistakable in Hebrew that this is the case. If the verb were plural, it would have to have a different ending. Similarly, when it says the darkness he called night, once again, called is in the singular and it would need a different ending if it was plural. So once again, Elohim is being used to refer to a single God, not multiple gods. And that's all the way through Genesis 1. It's always a single God doing all this stuff in the creation of the world. We could go through the full texts of Abraham and Genesis, noting how Smith misreads the verbs and pronouns. But I don't want to belabor the point, which is, you know, that Smith just gets it consistently wrong. 
the Hebrew original clearly and repeatedly indicates that Elohim is being used to refer to a single deity, not a group of deities. Let's take a moment here to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Natalie K., Adam M., Gerald O., Robert P., and Thomas Z. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, Jacqueline Brown, and Rosary Army. Check out their links in our show notes. So, Jimmy, what's an example of a passage where Elohim is used to refer to pagan deities? One example occurs in Exodus 12.12, where the Lord says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. This one is really obvious. It explicitly refers to the gods of Egypt, or the Elohim of Egypt. So here, the word is clearly being used to refer to a group of multiple foreign deities. And you, you said that the word Elohim is also used for angels. So where do we see that? To understand this one, we need a little background in biblical imagery. When describing where God lives in heaven, the biblical authors often use two images. The first is the image of a temple. In fact, the earthly temple in Jerusalem was regarded in some ways as a copy of God's heavenly temple. So the heavenly temple in heavenly temple imagery, it depicts God as being worshipped in heaven, just like he was being worshipped in the temple on earth. And the heavenly temple has an altar and an ark like the Ark of the Covenant, and there are heavenly priests and so on. The other image was that of a palace. So you you have a temple or a palace, and with God as the king. And so if God is a heavenly king, it's natural to picture him as dwelling in a heavenly palace with his royal court around him. And in a royal court, there are people of different ranks. On earth, the king is always at the top of the hierarchy, and so God is at the top of the heavenly hierarchy. On earth, the next level down from the king is the rest of the royal family, including the sons of the king. And so in the Old Testament, we read about the sons of God in the heavenly court. As we saw back in episode 87 on the Nephilim, there is a very strong case to be made that the sons of God in the Old Testament are what we would call angels. Now, bear in mind, just because they're called sons of God doesn't mean they're biological children of God. The term son of God gets used in multiple ways, including for human beings as the adoptive sons of God that St. Paul describes in Romans 8.23 and Galatians 4.5. He talks about us being adopted by God. And so the angelic sons of God, since they're created beings and God is uncreated, the angelic sons of God were adoptive rather than biological sons also. A royal court will also have high royal officials that function as commanders or leaders. In Hebrew, the word for this role is sar, and it's sometimes translated into English as prince, but that can be rather misleading because in English, a prince is the son of a king. But in Hebrew, Sar does not necessarily have that connotation. It can refer to just a high-ranking official 
or commander. And there are such individuals in God's heavenly court. For example, in Daniel 12.1, Michael is described as the prince, the Tsar or commander who has charge of the Jewish people. Earthly kings also had watchmen who would keep an eye on things and then report back to the king about anything that shouldn't be going on. And thus in Daniel 4, uh, verses 13 and 23, we read about one of God's watchmen or watchers coming down from heaven. Some officials might even have the function of accusing people of crimes, like a prosecutor. You know, it may be the crime of treason or something. Well, that's what Satan does in the heavenly court. In fact, the Hebrew term Satan means accuser. And so in the book of Job, he accuses Job of not really being loyal to God. An earthly king would also have military officials who would project force on his behalf. Some of these would be stationed around his throne to keep unauthorized people from approaching it. And so as the heavenly king, God is depicted as sitting on a magnificent heavenly throne, just like an earthly king would, with guards around it. That's what the seraphim in Isaiah and the cherubim in Ezekiel are doing. They are throne guardians. They're guarding God's throne to keep unauthorized people from approaching it. On earth, other military officers wouldn't be stationed around the throne, but they would be part of the king's army. And so in passages like 2 Kings 6.17, the prophet Elisha prays that his servant's eyes may be opened so that he can see the invisible army of the Lord. And when he does, he sees innumerable horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. So God's, you know, got an angelic army, but an army needs a commander. And so in Joshua 5.14, the commander or Sar of the army of the Lord appears to Joshua just before the battle of Jericho. And then finally, among the lowest of the palace officials are the messengers who run errands for the king. In Hebrew, the word for these messengers is malakim, and the Greek word is angeloi, from which we get angels. The angels are simply the messengers from God's court. So we see all these different people in the hierarchy of heaven. You've got God at the top, you have the sons of God. You have the Sarim, the, the princes or leaders. You've got the, the watchers, the watchmen. You've got the accuser, the prosecutor. You've got the throne guardians. You've got the members of the military. You've got the leader of the military. And then you've got the low-level angel, the low-level messengers who run the errands. So you've got this whole big heavenly hierarchy, just like a king would have on earth. And there's a difference, though between this Old Testament terminology and our modern terminology. Originally, in Hebrew, the term angel tended to be applied just to the little low-level messengers. The other officials in the divine court were known by other terms. They, were, they weren't little messengers. They were the sons of God or the princes or the watchers or the accuser or the cherubim or the seraphim. They had other names. But since we lowly humans normally are visited by the low-level messengers, that's the term that eventually came to dominate. Uh, 
And by New Testament times, you were starting to find all of the members of God's heavenly court simply referred to as angels. And that's the way we use the term today. If it's a heavenly spirit and it's not a human and it's not God, it's an angel. For example, Jude 9 refers to Michael as an archangel or chief or high-ranking angel. But in Daniel, he wasn't called an angel. He was called a prince, not a messenger. You know, there's a big difference between a prince and a messenger or a commander or a leader, however you want to translate Tsar. There's a difference between that and just a messenger. But by New Testament times, any superhuman spirit other than God gets called an angel. And so today, we'd speak of class two or superhuman spirits as just angels, regardless of how they would have been described in the Old Testament. Can you give us an example of a passage where we see God's heavenly court in action? Yeah, let's look at Job 1, verses 6 through 11. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, I'm from going back and forth on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So here we see the heavenly court in action. The sons of God, the high officials in heaven, all come in and present themselves before God as their king. And also Satan, the accuser, comes in after having been scouting things out on earth in God's earthly kingdom. God asks if he's noticed how if he's noticed how upright his servant Job is, and then the accuser accuses Job of being only a fair-weather friend who will curse God to his face if he suffers misfortune. And now that we've seen how the heavenly court works and how the term angel can be applied to all of its members except God, now we're ready to look at a verse that conceptualizes angels as Elohim. And where is that? If you look in Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5, in some translations like the Revised Standard Version, you'll find this. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him little less than God, and dost crown him with glory and honor. When the text says that the Lord has made man a little less than God, it uses the word Elohim. So what it really says is that he's made man little less than Elohim. And the translators then have to decide how are we going to translate Elohim. The translators of the RSV took Elohim as a reference to the true God, which is its most common meaning in the Old Testament. Most of the time, Elohim refers to the true God. And so they rendered it a little, little less than God. But that's not how everyone has translated it. When the Hebrew Bible was being translated into Greek in the century or two before Christ, the Septuagint translators looked at Elohim in this passage and said, that's a reference to angels. And so they used the word angelus, translating it to say that the Lord made man little lower than the angels. And that's not just their understanding. 
It was also the understanding of the inspired author of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, because in Hebrews 2, verses 5 and 6, the author quotes this psalm, and we read, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. So the inspired author of the Hebrews validates the Septuagint understanding where Elohim in the original Hebrew of Psalm 8, can be understood as referring to angels. And there are other reasons also why we can see Elohim as referring to angels, but that'll do for our purposes. What about Elohim being used to refer to departed human souls? Where do we see that happen? In 1 Samuel 28, when King Saul goes to consult the witch of Endor and asks her to call up the departed soul of the prophet Samuel, we read... Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Have no fear. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a god coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did obeisance. This translation, once again, the Revised Standard Version, renders the key statement, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Instead of God, other translations will use terms like ghostly figure, divine being, or spirit. As you can guess, the word in Hebrew is Elohim. And since the word is plural in form, the King James Version even has, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. But that's clearly wrong in this case, because Saul immediately asks, what is his appearance? And the pronoun is unmistakably singular. So this is a case where Elohim is being used in a singular rather than a plural sense. The important thing for our purpose is that when the medium says she sees an Elohim rising out of the earth, nobody bats an eye. Saul has asked her to call up Samuel, and in their eyes, everything is going according to the plan. She sees an Elohim rise out of the earth, and Saul asks, what does this Elohim look like? And she says, he's an old man wrapped in a robe, and Saul concludes, yep, that's Samuel. The fact Saul doesn't say, wait a minute, what do you mean some kind of superhuman spirit is coming up out of the earth? The, The fact that he is prepared to accept this Elohim as Samuel shows us that the term Elohim was broad enough to cover the souls of departed human beings. So knowing that, if I were translating this passage, I wouldn't use God for Elohim because it'd be misleading to the English-speaking reader. As we've seen, Elohim can refer to a bunch of different spiritual entities, whether it's God or the, the gods or angels or even now human spirits. So I just translated, I see a spirit coming up out of the earth, which is in fact how some professional Bible translations do render it. All right, let's go back to the subjects of monotheism and polytheism. We covered the fact that, as in Shinto, you could believe in a single supreme or class one spirit and be a monotheist in that sense. Yet, again, as in Shinto, you could believe in many superhuman or class two spirits and be counted as a polytheist. But from what you've said, the Hebrews believed in a multitude of class two spirits as well. 
In other words, the angels who are members of God's heavenly court. If the Hebrews believed in a single class one spirit and multiple class two spirits like Shintoists, why aren't they classified as polytheists too? Because of who they worshipped. They worshipped only the true God and they didn't worship the angels. This is the opposite of what Shinto did. Some may worship, some Shintoists may worship the creator, but in the main, they worship lesser gods like Amaterasu, the sun goddess. If the Hebrews worshipped angels the same way they worshipped the creator, well, then they'd be polytheists too. In the study of religion, and I said we'd have to introduce one more term uh, in this episode, in, in the study of comparative religion, scholars have come up with a term for the kind of worship the Hebrews engaged in, monolatry. Latria is a Greek term that refers to the worship that's offered to God, so it's not just respect, it's like, this is what you give God. And manos, as we said, means only or alone, so, so monolatry is the worship of one God alone. Another term that you'll sometimes hear for this is henotheism. In Greek, hen, also, it means one, and we've already covered where theism comes from, so henotheism would be one Godism. And that term is sometimes used to refer to the worship of one God, no matter how many gods may exist. But henotheism is also used other ways, so we're going to stick to monolatry in this episode. And does monolatry take a position on how many gods there are? No, a monolatrist would worship one god, for example, the god of his people, even if other gods existed. On the other hand, he'd also be a monolatrist if he worshipped one god and believed that there aren't any other gods. So monolatry just means the worship of one god, regardless of whether there are or are not any other gods. And then what did the Hebrews think about this issue? Different Israelites took different positions. Some were full-on polytheists who worshipped multiple gods in addition to the Lord, which is one of the things that the prophets are constantly condemning in the Old Testament. Others seem to have taken the position that, at least in the land of Israel, one was supposed to worship only the one God, but outside of Israel it would be okay to worship other gods. For example, we seem to see this attitude in 1 Samuel 26, verses 18 and 19. At this point, David is on the run from King Saul, and they're out in the mountains having a parley across a valley. So they're shouting back and forth so that they can be heard across the distance. And David said, Why does the Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What guilt is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. So David envisions men as having possibly stirred up King Saul against him and driving him out of the heritage of the Lord, meaning the land of Israel. And David pictures these men as saying to him, since they're kicking him out of Israel, go serve other gods, because they only envisioned worshiping the Lord in his holy land in Israel. So if you were in another land, 
you'd be expected to worship the gods of that land, which is what David envisions these men telling him to do. It thus looks like some people in Israel thought that you needed to worship only the God of Israel when you're in Israel, but it would be okay to worship other gods if you were in other lands. We see the flip side of this a few centuries later, after the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria. In 2 Kings 17, we read about what happened after the Assyrians deported the Israelites and replaced them with foreign settlers. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations which you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away thence, and let him go and dwell there, and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now, the foreign settlers were all pagans and had their own gods, but they didn't worship the Lord, and now they were living in his land. So the Assyrians recognized that the Lord was the God of Israel, not just of the people Israel, but also of the land of Israel. And so they were perfectly happy to worship him. They just needed a priest of the Lord to show them the right way to do this. Unfortunately, they also kept worshiping their ancestral gods. In any event, both among the Israelites and other ancient Near Easterners, like these foreign settlers, there was a perception that gods were associated with particular lands which belonged to them. So Israel was God's land. If some Israelites, like the men David envisioned kicking him out of Israel, thought it was okay to worship other gods in other lands, was that an orthodox view? No, absolutely not. And this was made clear to the Jewish people in the Babylonian exile. The prophets made it clear that even though you're now living in a foreign land, you cannot worship foreign gods. You are only permitted to worship uh, the God of Israel, even if you're not in Israel right now. In fact, this should have been clear to them already, because from the Exodus onward, God had a binding covenant with them that they would worship him alone. And he made that covenant with them even before they came into the land. That's why the golden calf incident with, when Moses was up on the mountain was such a problem. God had already delivered the Israelites from Egypt. He'd already committed to a relationship with them. And even though they weren't even in the land yet, they were already going after other gods. And the principle of worshiping God alone is right there in the Ten Commandments, where we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And God gave them that command 40 years before they came into the promised land, so it didn't matter what country an Israelite was in. He was still supposed to worship only the Lord. Today, we're used to thinking of pagan gods as simply not existing. Is that how the Israelites would have understood matters? Actually, no. And to understand why, we need a little more background on the Old Testament worldview. Remember the image of the divine court in heaven with God ruling everything as the supreme being, but with various angelic courtiers of different ranks under him. 
Some of them were high-ranking angels, and these are the ones described in the Old Testament in passages like Genesis 6 or Job 1 as the sons of God. Well, people of high rank in a court are given authority over things on behalf of the king, and so some of these angels would be in charge of things. One of the things that we know some of them were put in charge of is different nations on earth. Remember how Michael was described in Daniel 12.1 as the Tsar, the prince or commander who had charge of the Jewish people. Well, a couple of chapters earlier in Daniel 10, we learned that other nations also have angelic princes, Sarim, over them. In this passage, in Daniel 10, Daniel's been praying to God, and eventually the angel Gabriel shows up, and he's got an explanation for why he didn't show up earlier. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia and came to make you understand what is to befall your people in the latter days. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I am through with him, lo, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So just like Michael is the prince over the Jewish people, there's also a prince over the people of Persia and a prince over the Greeks. Right now, as Gabriel speaks to Daniel, the angelic prince Michael is engaged in a holding action against the angelic prince of Persia, and when Gabriel goes back and they join forces again, they're going to defeat him, which will make way for the angelic prince of Greece to cause a conflict. And notice, these angelic princes aren't all on the same side. They're having conflicts. Michael is a good guy, so he's on the side of God and is doing God's will. But the angelic princes of the pagan nations of Persia and Greece are in opposition, meaning that they're fighting against God and his will. Notice how the angelic prince of Persia tried to keep Gabriel from being able to speak to Daniel, and he succeeded for 21 days. Except at this stage in history, these princes wouldn't have been called angels. They wouldn't have been thought of as angelic princes because angels were just lowly messengers. These were high-ranking officials in, in, in heaven, and so they were called sarim, princes or commanders, or as spirits of high rank, they also could have been called sons of God. That is what we see in Deuteronomy 32, where we read, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he fixed the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So, got that? When the Lord gave the different nations of men their inheritances, their places to live, their countries, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God, placing each nation under an angelic prince. But he took Israel as his own people— Thus, God ruled Israel more directly, but delegated the task of ruling the other nations to the angelic princes. But then, as we've seen, some of the princes turned bad and started resisting God's will, like the prince of Persia. So, some of the angels turned bad. 
And if we read a little further down in Deuteronomy 32 to where it talks about the Israelites starting to worship foreign deities, we find this. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abhorrent things they provoked him. They sacrificed to demons, not God, to deities they had never known, to new ones recently arrived, whom your ancestors had not feared. We've quoted this passage from the New Revised Standard Version because its translation is actually better than the RSV in this case. The key thing to note is how the author conceptualizes the foreign gods that's what strange means in this case. It just means foreign that the Israelites were worshiping. He says they sacrificed to demons, not God. So the biblical author is conceptualizing the foreign gods, which he had just characterized a few verses earlier as sons of God, as demons, indicating that they had fallen and become evil beings. The Hebrew word for demon here is shed. And the same word appears in Psalm 106, where we find the same understanding of foreign gods. Again, discussing the idolatry that has occurred after the Israelites started imitating foreign peoples, the psalmist says, They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. So by worshiping foreign idols, the Israelites ended up sacrificing their sons and daughters to Shadim, or demons. This is the origin of the view that you find in the church fathers, that pagans were worshiping what Christians would call demons, or fallen angels. This view actually goes back to the Old Testament, where the biblical authors understood the nations to be ruled by angelic princes that had gone bad and were now resisting God's will. There's actually a lot more to say about this and related subjects, but it'll have to wait for future episodes. For now, I'd like to close by taking us back to the discussion of monotheism and polytheism and looking at them in light of what we've talked about. So how would you define monotheism and polytheism in light of all this? Monotheism would be the belief that there is only a single supreme or class one spirit, and he's either the only greater than human spirit that exists, meaning there would be no class twos, or if there are class twos, he's the only one that should be given divine worship. So Orthodox Israelites and Christians would thus be monotheists because we think there's only a single infinite creator. And even though he may have superhuman angels, they're not to be worshiped the way God is. By contrast, polytheism involves belief in and worship of multiple superhuman spirits, either of class one or class two type. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the question of God and the gods? Monotheism and polytheism are concepts that need to be understood with some nuance. Traditional monotheism doesn't typically involve denying that multiple superhuman spirits exist. It involves the claim that only one supreme spirit exists and that only he should receive divine worship. Polytheism, by contrast, may acknowledge a single supreme creator, as in Shinto, but it involves giving divine worship to other spirits. 
the biblical worldview is particularly interesting, with the Supreme Creator presiding over a heavenly court consisting of many angelic beings who play different roles, and some of whom have gone bad. Like I said, there's a lot more in this area to discuss, so we'll be covering it in future episodes. Great. And Jimmy, what do we have for further resources this episode? Well, I've actually been writing about the Divine Court for years, and one of the resources we'll have is a link to an article I wrote. It must have been over 20 years ago. It was back in the 1990s, I think, when I wrote it. It's on my website at jimmyakin.com. It's an article on the Divine Court, and it also shows how the Israelites compared God's court to other courts and other pantheons like the Canaanites. Also, a scholar who's done a good bit of work in this area, he's one of the best-known people in this area today, is a guy named Michael Heiser. We mentioned him in previous episodes. I've had some interaction with him, and he's always been nice to me. He, One of his books that deals with this material is called The Unseen Realm. And so we'll have a link to where you can get his book. We'll also have articles on Kami, and Amenemanakanushi and Amaterasu, and also an article on Joseph Smith and his translation of Elohim as gods. Very good. Excellent. So uh, this week we have mysterious feedback uh, coming from our 100th episode, Mysterious Celebration. Uh, this is a bit of audio feedback coming from listener Michael. Growing up, I was always fascinated by mysteries and, well, nothing has changed. I've been listening to Jimmy Aiken for years and was so excited when I found out about Mysterious World. I've listened to every episode and don't plan on ever missing one. Jimmy, I have full trust in you, so it's great that you do all the work and we can trust that you are fair and thorough. And us nerds reap all the benefits. Dom, thank you for making all this possible. Congratulations on your 100th episode. Keep it up, men. And really appreciate those kind words, Michael. Thank you very much. My effort is to be fair and balanced. I can't always say I'm going to come to the right conclusion, but I always want to present the evidence fairly and try to analyze it uh, to the best of my ability. So thank you so much. And we do plan on keeping going long into the future by God's grace and by the support of our listeners. All right. And then uh, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week, Jimmy? Well, we've got a UFO or unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP theme. We've done a number of shows dealing with the Navy's UFO program, and now there's some new news about that. The Navy has decided that they are going to release new material from this program on a regular basis, like once or twice a year. And so we'll have a link to a story about that. And we get a little more background on this program. And yes, it is continuing, despite the fact that some officials had tried to make it sound like it isn't. But no, it is continuing. And they've been briefing people in Congress about it. And in fact, there's one scientist that they had briefed Congress earlier this year who said that We've got material that we don't know how to make, and it apparently came from craft not made on this earth. Hmm. So testimony to Congress for what it's worth. Check it out. Also, you may remember a number of months ago in Colorado, there were mysterious objects appearing in the sky, and people thought, is this like some big drone swarm or something? Where are these mysterious things coming from. Well, the War Zone, which is a, a channel on drive.com that has been really good at covering aerospace things, including 
unidentified aerial phenomena. They did an investigation into the Colorado mystery drones and looked at what the FAA's was doing behind the scenes to try to figure this out. And it looks like it was not a military exercise. So it was something else going on in the skies. Doesn't look like it was the military or any known commercial source was putting these things up in the sky. So check that out too. Excellent. So at this point, we want to ask you, the listeners, for what you think about our topic today of God and the gods. And what are your theories and your questions? Uh, you can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, or by sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. And be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, this episode, we mentioned Shinto and different deities in Shinto. And next episode, we're going to be taking you to the homeland of Shinto. We're going to Japan. We're going to be telling you about a desperate military coup that occurred at the end of World War II and almost changed the course of history. You will not want to miss this one. Excellent. All right, so until then, you can find links to Jimmy's resources from today's discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, help us continue to produce the podcast. Please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>